So as I was saying, I'm been reflecting on this fact of listening deeply as the oral transmission of this tradition, the fact that one heart opens to another and energy and intention is passed on and then we receive these teachings here in this monastery at this very moment. It's a beautiful thing. This is from the chant of boundless compassion that we chant every morning here in the service. Absorbing world sounds awakens the right here. I thought that was a wonderful expression of what we've been doing this week. Absorbing. We've been filled up with sounds. Sounds of the birds, sounds of the rain, even the surprising sound of snow. Beautiful music, the sound of breath, and the many sounds of fellowship as we all gather together to manifest our deepest aspirations. And we're being absorbed, our contributions and efforts merging into that pregnant space from which sound appears and disappears. Have you noticed the vivid traces of Kosho's angelic voice or Soten's moving guitar? In that space of silence, still alive, still buzzing, certainly buzzing in my own heart. We leave traces. This is just a fact of being human. So we have to be careful with the soundings that we make. Careful speech. Careful actions. On some level, our lives are indelible. They leave large imprints. which cause consequences for ourselves and the world. On the other hand, one kind word or deed, one beautiful song, infinitely impactful. Absorbing world sounds awakens a Buddha right here. And what are we absorbing? World sounds. Not just me and mine. We're opening to the subtle, to the more than human world. And because of this opening, we are opening to a bigger view of ourselves. So this absorption in sound awakens a Buddha, you, 
when our deepest potential is aroused, we are stirred, woken up. What are we woken up from? We're woken up from the enchantment of self-concern. And where does this happen? Right here, nowhere else. As Hawkwind Zenji says, this ground on which we stand is the pure lotus land, and this very body, the body of Buddha, this is a precious human life. One of the benefits of listening deeply is that we can view our experiences of suffering through a different lens. We become curious about our lives, even the difficult stuff. The teacher Thich Nhat Hanh, I mean, reading a lot of his stuff recently, I find him to be so simple and yet so profound, has a wonderful way of saying this. The quality of your attention to the present moment doesn't just impact the future, it impacts the past. Power of attention is like a superpower. It can change our past. Creating these Dharma talks has been a very interesting experience for me of deep listening. What will arise? What wants to be shared? Today, what came forth was interesting. It's a slice of my own suffering that wanted to be shared with you. It's my very first memory. And interestingly, it's a memory about listening. It goes like this. I'm a baby in a crib. And I've just woken up from a nap. I'm met by a deafening silence. I have the sense that I'm completely alone. That my mother is not there. This leaves me with a deep sense of sadness, a deep sense of loneliness. The intensity of this feeling state becomes a backdrop for much of my life. I become a sad human being, a disappointed human being, a human being who feels ignored, why would my mother leave me alone? An overwhelming, all-permeating question around which my life revolves. The Zen teacher, Joko Beck, talks about these programs that drive our lives as core beliefs, deep narratives that we are listening to even if we don't know it. She says, we all have a core belief. 
you may not know it yet if you haven't thought about your life in this way, but it's there. I'm not saying it's all of who you are, but it is there to some degree or another. And it will come up, particularly in times of crisis. Our work is to know and experience the core belief so that we can understand the way we sabotage ourselves. She says, our core belief for most of us comes down to some version of I feel worthless. That can look like I'm not enough. I'm hopeless. I'm alone. I'm not lovable. There are a lot of variations, but always on the same separate miserable state. And this belief is like the hub of a wheel. Out of it come the spokes, the systems, strategies we use so that we don't have to feel the pain of this core belief. And sometimes our strategies are aggressive. Sometimes they are placating, very nice, charming. They can be anything. They may look wonderful in the eyes of the world, or they may look disgraceful in the eyes of the world. She says, the important thing is not the particular content of your strategies, but that you notice that they are strategies and begin to trace the spokes back to the hub. Tracing the spokes back to the hub. How do we do this? She suggests that we pay attention to the contraction, not the content. Can I really know whether my feelings of sadness and distress are only the result of my mother's absence? There is a mysterious terrain to our lives causes and conditions that we do not know. This is both the terrifying and wonderful gift of deepening practice. We begin to realize that we don't really know who we are. There is a feeling of disruption. So let's work with my contraction. Please imagine that you are me, this baby in a crib. Imagine being on your back, vulnerable. Imagine waking up to no familiar sounds straining after the sounds of your mother. Imagine the sense of bereftness, of craving. Imagine the rigid body, the held breath. Isn't this a vivid description 
of the suffering experience. Tense body, stuck breath, the sense of separation. Now become this baby with a relaxed body. Allow your breath to flow. Have a sense of your spine. The possibility of standing on your own two feet. We must investigate the contraction. This is an important part of practice life, of zazen. Where does it lie in the body? Where are we stuck? As we know from these nine days, The listening body is soft, it's relaxed, it's receptive, it's informed by breath. Please recognize that breathing and listening are not separate practices. Other than just a potent description of suffering, I found this memory interesting for other reasons. I already know how to listen with my whole body. I already know that my stuck breath feels bad. I already know the suffering in chasing after sounds. As Jogan mentioned yesterday, the Pali word for mindfulness, sati, which comes from the Sanskrit word smriti, means remembering. In our suffering experience, there's often something to be curious about, something that you already know. you may want to investigate your own core programs, your own flavors of suffering. What's the gift in your story? And this memory shows me something else how early inquiry starts, the questions. Am I alone? Am I safe? So early in life, we may have an inkling that we don't know the complete picture, that there is a larger view. The very impulse 
that moves us on to the spiritual path that may have brought us here today. Practice requires curiosity. We don't just sit here like a lump on a log. We need to develop a real interest in our lives. Some of us may feel deterred to do this because we've heard that the Buddha considered most of our questions to be unhelpful. So we become scared to use our minds. That's kind of understandable considering all of the questions that he dismisses. And I'll give you some examples. Am I? What am I? Am I not? Did I exist in the past? What was I? Will I exist in the future? What will I be? Where did I come from? Where will I go? Is the world eternal? What happens to the Tathagata after death? Well, these all seem like hot topics in spiritual circles, don't they? So was the Buddha asking us not to ask questions? Are we not supposed to reflect upon our lives? I think that's a ridiculous perspective. Obviously, he was a curious person with a deep ability to observe and investigate his own experience. I think it takes a lot of curiosity to leave a pleasure palace. It takes a lot of curiosity to take on deep vows of renunciation. The quality of direct investigation is one of the seven factors of awakening. It's called Dhamma Vichaya. The Buddha suggests that once mindfulness is established, meaning once we settle down into the body, we can use our intelligence to be discerning about our experience. It's uh, compared to a jeweler looking at different facets of a jewel. We can experience, examine our experience from many angles. We're like a farmer separating the good grain from the bad. We can use our intelligence to sort through things, make distinctions, abandon the unwholesome, and cultivate the wholesome. In this way, we can engage the mind as a tool for liberation. We do this by dropping the question into the present moment experience of our lives. Today I wanted to share with you an inquiry method taught by the Buddha, actually the very first method taught by the Buddha. I think of it as a pocket practice, using that term from Lama Lakshay, uh, 
a really interesting thing that you can take with you and carry around. Sometimes it's nice to have something concrete to work with after Sashin. This comes from a wonderful sutta called the Anatalakana Sutta or the Anatma Lakshmana Sutta, the characteristics of no self-teaching, where the Buddha investigates self-view. It's also known as the Panchavagya Sutra, mean belonging to the group of five, because this was taught to his first five disciples. It's the second teaching that he ever gave. I have this image of him filled with the morning star, wrapped in the roots of the Bodhi tree. Must have been hard for him to get up, to break the silence, to speak. But he felt that this was important enough to say. According to the Buddha, our suffering life, all of these dukkha-filled storylines, all of these core programs come from a fundamentally wrong view, which can be expressed in three simple statements. This is mine. This is me. This is myself. These statements are the fuel of the eye-making process. And the term used for this is ahamkara, or mamankara, eye-making, my-making. We are all deeply familiar with this process. This is mine. This highlights our tendency towards possessing our experiences, the sense of ownership, as if everything exists for your own gratification. You may have noticed the centrality of yourself in all of your storylines as you sat Sashin. This is me. This highlights our tendency towards building up our sense of self. We identify with views, with things, this is the kind of person I am. This is the way the world should be. This is what I am capable of. This is how people should treat me. This is myself. The final statement, the cherry on the cake. We become a solid being who is a particular way. This is the personal territory. This is the ground of suffering. For the Buddha, these statements define a fundamentally wrong view that is the source of dukkha. <coughs> His insight is that we can live a life that is not personal, a life where we are not at the center of things. He had the insight that this kind of life is larger, more intimate, more inclusive, 
It stimulates a sense of engagement and wholeheartedness. You must also have an inkling of this, or you wouldn't have been sitting here for nine days doing something so grueling. So this sutta, but that goes on to ask us to investigate these three statements, to drop the question into our direct experience. Sushin is the perfect place to look at these because we have just spent nine days seeing the reality of impermanence so clearly. He asks us, how can we have a sense of possession or control or ownership when things are constantly changing? Do we have a choice about when a painful sensation arises, when a thought comes into the mind, when a feeling becomes dominant? He suggests that the opposite is more aligned with our direct experience. This is not mine. This is not me. This is not myself. This is the potent mantra that you can take for your life. This is not mine. This is not me. This is not myself. This is not mine. Imagine saying this every time the tendency to own, to possess arises. This is not me. Imagine saying this every time we catch ourselves identifying, fixing on a belief, creating a storyline. This is not myself. Imagine saying this when you are reveling in a feeling of solidity and self-satisfaction. These reminders help us make vivid our tendency towards possession and identification, the fertilizer for this personal territory, the source of suffering. Please take to heart this pocket practice, these helpful reminders. This is not mine. This is not me. This is not myself. This short sutta is so important because it's revolutionary. The Buddha reframes the great spiritual question, who am I, to another question, what is alive? For the Buddha, the question, who am I, is diminishing. It makes our lives small. Instead, he suggests that we experience the aliveness of the present moment. His instructions, very clear. Pay attention to the body, to the breath, to feelings, to the mind, to the objects of mind. 
here lies our large life. As we've experienced this week, devoted attention opens us up. Even after nine days, we start to get in touch with the person that we are beyond the person that we seem to be. Please continue to have faith in a larger life. Please continue to care about listening. Please continue to be touched. We really do need your beautiful sound in this world. <laughs>